Welcome to the Future That Works podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Lim. Today we have Ryan Lim, the CEO and founder of QED Consulting. Ryan is an entrepreneur, founding partner, and principal consulting of QED Consulting. He is a pioneer in social media marketing, has over 15 years of digital marketing experience. He was also the president of the Republic of Singapore that made Ryan a Skills Future Fellow. And now he advises senior management teams of some of the world's leading businesses and brands on digital transformation, team structures, and digital marketing strategies to transform them into world-class purpose-based organizations. Ryan's trained over 3,000 marketing professionals from Fortune 500 companies and government organizations across the ASEAN region. As course developer for leading tertiary institutions, Ryan often lectures at Singapore Management University, Singapore Institute of Management, and Republic Polytechnic. Ryan was also a member of the Board of Directors of Singapore's Infocom Media Development Authority, where he provided guidance and expertise on digital and social media policies and initiatives that has national impact. So it's my great honor to welcome Ryan to this conversation of influence, one of the key skills we need to navigate change in our volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. Welcome, Ryan, to Future That Works podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Great, great. So Ryan, you know, when we talked earlier about influence, I was really intrigued about, you know, your background on as a digital marketer and consultant and trainer. So I was wondering whether you could share with us a time where you sought to really understand your colleagues or clients' point of view, like their feelings and needs and what insights surprised you. Sure. So this happened almost like uh, about three years ago, and we were having a bit of a, a work trip down to Shanghai. And the team actually sort of was very excited to see numbers. I mean, you see a lot of data dashboards these days, and we realized that there was a surge of traffic moving into a particular store. And with all that IoT that's been happening, and you realize that you can actually measure the amount of foot traffic that moves in from one door and then out the other. Now, what's been interesting is that while there is a, a huge surge of human traffic, where we're not seeing any particular conversions resulting from it, and the clients were very puzzled, and so were we, and we said, hey, maybe we should go by and take a look and find out what in the world was going on, and we were just nearby. And we went down to that place, and we saw, we were, sure enough, there was a huge amount of human traffic in a very peculiar fashion for a store. Most people move in from one door, they literally just move out the other door, and they don't stay very long. And the more we looked at it, we were like trying to figure out why is this huge surge of human traffic? And only when we turn the corner and go down the road, and we realized that it was due to <laughs> the traffic police redirecting people into one singular direction. Um, so everyone was going in the store just to avoid the redirection of traffic and then to go out the other side. So they weren't there for the shopping uh, or to buy stuff from the store itself. And then we realized that, well, yeah, maybe the data set itself uh, doesn't tell us everything all the time, right? That requires a lot of understanding in context is literally sensitivities in terms of being more empathetic to the situation, uh, to realize the full picture. And very often we have all biases, right? Mm -hmm. And assumptions. Whenever we deal with anything that deals with data or businesses, we assume certain things because we have certain biases, and because we see something that's in our way of thinking or a philosophy, we jump to the conclusion that, yeah, that's justification behind it without really trying to question how true we are, what are the assumptions that we hold, and are we truly biased when we're looking at whatever we're seeing today? And I thought that was a very great story and learning point for all of us, actually, uh, for my team is, uh, for this matter. Oh, that's a great story. And the preconceived idea of what was happening 
can often apply to our stereotypes of people. So I was wondering whether you have another story around stereotypes that we have of people or, or even their roles, you know, where, and, and where maybe you took the time to set aside the, any preconceptions that you were aware of because of their role and, you know, really listen so that you could more effectively influence the person and the objective that you have for your client or for your team. Mm-hmm. Well, you're talking about people's biases. We all do, all right? When we, 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 we go in, we tend to sometimes have our point of view that we try to share or to influence in our favor. And you'll find that this is a very one-sided view whenever we go into any discussion. And as, as a consultant, we tend to go into a lot of discussions and where there's a lot of negotiation going on, there's influence on both sides of the table. We have to try and influence a positive outcome from our clients and influence can come negatively and uh, positively. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But the reality is that they will have their own perceptions as well. That's where they got them where they are today and their worldview. They have to be able to establish some form of worldview. We come fresh in without all the baggage and also sometimes without context. So if that happens, and very often when that happens, you find that our ideas and our direction that we want to go or help to go, it's actually tangential to each other. We are not going the same direction. That usually doesn't work out very well for either parties. And the conversations usually break down quite a bit. And the other problem that we do see as well in some of these kind of meetings and encounters with people is that we tend to assume, and and gender does play a role as well, we assume that if you're older or you are a male or a female, there's certain biases behind it as well. Oh, they're like this, they're like that. And more than not, we're quite surprised that if we spend enough time trying to listen and understand rather than to articulate our area or rather the, our point of view, we do come to much amicable consensus or even mutually beneficial consensus a lot more often than when we try to influence people according to our worldview of things. You'll find that most people are willing to work somewhere in the middle ground, come to some form of concession when they realize that you are trying to do it for them, for their good and for their benefit or mutually. I mean, it doesn't always have to be a one-sided affair. And that's where it actually comes out in a good way. It's harder with Asian customers as well because we don't tend to share a lot. We tend to hold our cards and our emotions and our thinking very close to ourselves. Uh, And we've done regional work across Asia and we realize this as well. Some cultures tend to share a lot more. Um, Some cultures tend to be a little bit more on the uh, surface. They don't always tell you what they really think. There's a lot of undercurrents behind what they say as well. So there's a lot of inference and trying to understand. There's a lot of context behind it. There's a lot of background behind it. So you need to jettison a lot of your biases and listen more and try to understand then to articulate what exactly your point of view is so that you are more effective uh, for a mutually beneficial outcome most of the time. So that's our experience personally anyway. That's really great. I love what you said about, you know, listening more. I was wondering whether you had any examples of where you had a preconceived idea of the people you're trying to influence, but in listening deeper that you found yourself surprised at some insights that wouldn't have otherwise have existed had you not listened really deeply. (laughs) I'm not going to name names, but there's a reasonably interesting one where we thought that there was a business problem that they were having. And most people who come to us as consultants generally tend to say, hey, look, I've got this problem. Come help solve. Uh, We we have this. My guys and my teams are not as competent as they should be because we are equipping a lot of these 
digital teams to be more competent to upskill their capabilities uh, to be more effective for the organization. So what's interesting is that they thought that they have a business problem and they thought it was a technical problem. So it was a question of technical competency as well as the direction that they were going. They sort of labeled that as the most likely problem that they are facing and they called us in because knowing that we are able to solve those problems for them. And before we jumped into it, providing any recommendations, we told them, hey, look, um, allow us to have a heart-to-heart talk one-on-one without the bosses and listen from the team and figure out what's going on. And we sort of sat down for almost close to about 18 hours just recording and listening to them without the bosses, of course. And we told the bosses that whatever we listen, uh, you will not hear the records of the tape. Uh, we have evidence and just in case of audits. But the fact is that uh, we will not label anyone, but we will tell you analysis based on those recorded messages that we've seen and heard so that people are more willing to share. I mean, in the Asian context, tends to be a little bit more fearful of their supervisors or their bosses. And what we discovered wasn't so much of a technical competency kind of a problem. We realized that it was a matter of internal corporate politics. So you've got multiple stakeholders coming to them, no one making any particular decision. And these guys are competent. The problem is not that they're not competent. It's a structural problem. It's a political problem. It's a other problems which were sometimes a lot of frustration resulting coming from this, right? You do not know who's deciding. Your boss tends to let every other stakeholder have a say in it. It becomes like a, a moving in five different directions at one go for anything that you're trying to do. It becomes extremely frustrating and most people stall as a result of which. So it was a, a bit of an interesting discovery for us too. You know? We realized that we thought it was an easy thing to solve if it's just a technical issue and training. But only to realize that it is actually a lot more when we start to listen to these people and we weren't talking. We asked questions and they answered and we figured out a lot more. (laughs) This might be a tricky one. Do you have any examples where in looking at a transformation project, for example, where it's actually the leadership that is blocking the transformation and it's the leadership that hired you to help uh, affect the change that they want? We are a lot safer than that. It's not that tricky, but it's, we've encountered that a lot. <laughs> it's amazing sometimes when you have people asking for digital transformation. I say, why is it that you want to go on it? I mean, that's the kind of starter questions that we want to know, what the motivation wanted was all about, right? And you'll be surprised that sometimes the board of directors and even the senior leadership would have encountered maybe a much younger close relative who have, um, was on some new fancy technology um, and they were very fascinated by it and as a result that somehow became something that they should take a look at and fired all cylinders into that particular direction Uh, it's happened before (laughs) Mm -hmm, definitely yeah so they think that well since my relative is using it therefore everyone else should be like this that's a certain type of bias that we face as well and we tend to shy away from such projects because the motivations are generally wrong yeah but even having the wrong mode starting point, if they are still receptive enough to hear that, and before we go into any particular project, we tend to tell them this, don't expect us to agree with you all the time. But if you are not open to actually us telling you that, no, you're wrong, then you're not probably going to hire us. Because our job is not to tell you what you want to hear, but what you should hear from what's really happening on ground for you. Yeah. So that's a hard lesson to <laughs> for yeah. more senior leadership yeah it is a hard yeah. lesson especially in Asia yeah and in Asian companies where there's a intergenerational leadership team you know like the originating founder maybe second generation or first generation and then you've got the younger 
more digitally savvy next generation coming up. Have you had any examples where you're trying to support the new leadership blood to effect the transformational change from a digital perspective, but it's the old guard that is, uh, you know, uh, in the old blood that is actually in the way as well? Look, we're quite lucky that while the, I'm not sure how you would like to label them, but the original founders or the older generation of leadership, when they pass the baton to them, they tend to let the new generation leaders have the say, the final say. But we have only encountered so far one of such leadership where the original founders still has the final say in a lot of things. But that type of companies, we tend to find that don't change and adapt very well. Because the world has changed quite significantly in terms of expectations and what needs. Unless you are in the front lines, you would not know what's happening out there. So for these type of things, we we fear for them. And we, we find that they don't always provide roadblocks. I think they are at the stage where most of them are already saying, like, look, I've done my deals and I want to enjoy my life. Please go on work with my son or my daughter to solve some of these problems. Quite a bit of that has been happening, even in bigger corporations as well. They do trust the second generation leadership, what's been happening. But I think the disruption is not so much on the second generation of leadership mm. because the environment tends to force people to make changes and to accept change. Mm. We have the environment to thank for that. It's like if your business is tanking severely enough, you will do something about it. Mm. Whether rightly or wrongly, it depends on whether or not you're open to listen to what's been happening. Mm. There are organizations, I mean, not necessarily a family-based business, but like what you mentioned, Mm. in uh, larger big corporations as well. Sometimes even when you bring the smartest group of people together and you don't give them the mandate to do what they need to do, they suffer a lot. Yeah. They suffer a lot. Yeah. Let's take retail, for example, right? Say retail, and typically a lot of retail starting companies, the team is very family-oriented and, you know, it's very much around deep, intimate customer relationships. But as you move into online and you don't actually necessarily touch the customer and you're not necessarily having a team of customer service people actually physically interacting with the customers, that idea of family and that idea of, you know, having those high-touch customer relationships going to change and moving on to online might, for some originating founders and businesses, difficult to transition to because the old way of doing things is basically right. going to get shut down. I mean, this is an easy example to come up with, even though a lot of people have transitioned, but basically you get the gist. It's like killing the existing business. <laughs> yeah. Well, Okay. You don't have to look very far. I mean, there's a lot of case studies like this where you find that I subscribe to this philosophy of the innovator's dilemma. This was actually by Clayton Christensen who just Mm. recently passed. Mm. I'm a bit of a fanboy about his philosophy as well. He said this, you find that the big companies which have been very used to the current mode of operation tends to stall innovation because they've invested so much in it. And not only that, you realize that or they think that they have a cash cow. So their focus is to retard its decline, not to increase the new business that is going to eventually replace them. So not too many of a lot of these companies. I mean, if you look at the traditional press today, they're suffering from the same problem. Smart people working for them. And that's why they are huge, big media conglomerates out there today. But they have not 
understood how that new disruption is coming from below, where the basic needs are now redefined by a disruptor. And because their business structures are also very different, unlike the legacy traditional structures that most businesses have, they are unable to adapt and forced by circumstance and even sometimes to hit quarterly numbers and reports in terms of revenues and profits, they tend to take the safest route, which is generally not a resilient route or future-proving route, if you will. So companies like Kodak or Nokia uh, literally went into oblivion because of such thing. I mean, the biggest of this is actually like Kodak, right? They were profitable doing their major business until the patent ran out for uh, digital imaging. See what happened, right? And they were making money. Kodak filed for bankruptcy as a result of which because they were not able to relinquish their existing old business model, which is deteriorating at a record pace, and to understand that they need to redefine themselves from ground up. That takes a lot of moral courage to do so, including the stakeholders managing them, and also to understand that the whole world has changed and they need to redefine themselves. Which then brings up to the whole thing about being a little bit more playing the infinite game like the one that Simon Sinek has been doing. Uh-huh. Uh, and and it's, that concept is not from him, but the fact that he's articulated it in a business context a lot clearer, um, I'll, I'll give it to him for that. It's amazing. So that whether or not, if you focus on the cause itself, the infinite cause, so like for Kodak, it's that they wanted to bring affordable memories, if I'm correct, I can't remember the full mission behind it, but affordable memories to the masses. So if they have actually stuck on to their original mission, which is an infinite thing, right? To being able to have affordable memories for the masses, they could have actually jumped onto the digital bandwagon without having to disrupt anything they're doing because this is part of their mission. But I think they were trying to look at how to be profitable to their stakeholders, which is a, a finite game. And as a result of which, then they sort of tanked as a, because they were just aiming for the numbers and not trying to reinvent themselves so that they are still relevant to their mission. At the end of the day. Mm. I was wondering whether you could also share some tips you might have on, you were talking earlier about listening deeply with empathy, I think. Any tips on like, you know, when you're actually listening to customers or listening to the end users, especially when you might not necessarily agree with the other person's point of view and, you know, how do you keep your point of view in check whilst really, really paying attention to what's going on with on the other side? <laughs> you kind of pay attention when you want to get your point across. Yeah, exactly. So how do you do that? How do you do that? So you don't. <laughs> if you really want to listen, and I think I would encourage you to have a notepad or at least in a high-intense negotiation or a conversation kind of a meeting, have someone do the listening uh, and someone else do the talking. Mm. Usually, they're not very good in one single same person. So when we go for meetings, you normally have an observer. You've got someone who's part of the discussion. The observer tends to take notes to look at it from an outside point of view or third-party point of view who's not directly involved in the discussion. That gives them clarity as well, what the issues happening, the mechanics, the body language of both sides, any implications of what they say without having to be totally too close to the conversation that's been going on. That might be helpful. So that's one way of doing it, right? The other way is ask questions and listen for answers. Don't judge. Just take it all down. If you want to put your point across, you're not listening. If you're listening, you shouldn't be putting a point across. 
Yeah, that's, that's really, those are really good tips. I remember when I was in an accelerator program, that was the one thing we were taught right at the get-go on like when you're interviewing end users to go as a team of two. So um, I love that you mentioned that. Right. Um, and recently, I, I'm only halfway through watching this masterclass on uh, negotiating uh, from a, I think it was like a hostage negotiator. And he, he was talking about, you know, how do you... Ah, uh, I know that. Uh, you know that one? Yeah. So he was talking about how to maintain rapport. And his first tip, I think, was to just uh, repeat the last couple of words that the other person's saying so that, you know, you can get them from, just to get them connected with you emotionally to understand their feelings. So I thought that was an interesting tip. Do you remember that one? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I, I wanted to ask you was, you know, as consultants, what I find is we're so used to, we're trained to focus on identifying the gaps and then closing the gap because that's what you're hired for as, as far as you know, process improvements or transformation, you know, whether it's a skill gap or the structural gaps. So I was wondering whether you could share a story of how you or maybe another leader that uh, you've noticed uh, focused on helping organizations, understanding people's strengths as opposed to their weaknesses and aligning that to their purpose in order to actually transform the company for the greater good or you know, serving their customers or employees. You're interested in the how or what we saw? Both, but more specifically on focusing on the strengths because I think a lot of the automatic tends to be on the negative, like you know, so-called negative part, which is focusing on what you're missing. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, I, I hardly find anybody having problem telling people about their strength. It's an ego thing. Okay. <laughs> you're stroking someone's ego where you're telling them, oh man, you're so strong in that area. <laughs> As you're saying, people generally do focus on other people's strengths? Well, the strengths are easy to talk about. As part of a conversation for us is that, put it this way, we always try to define it first of what it takes to solve the problem. Mm. We're not here to look for, we're not a fault finder. We're a solutions finder. So if you focus primarily on gaps and try to close them, you're doing nothing but finding faults. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's not what we do. Um, as a consultant, for us, I think what we're most effective is let's look for a solution that works. And that doesn't require us to look for faults. We look for what's needed. It's a very different discussion. We've sort of veered away from fault finding, uh, which I understand that sometimes in consultancy work, that tends to do that, to solutions finding. Mm. where we say, hey, look, what's needed to actually solve that problem? And I think that that becomes less adversarial. Mm. That's actually more acceptable for most organizations. Mm. Now, it's very different when they ask you, please audit us and tell us where we went wrong. Now, that's become fault-finding. And the solution is yeah. fault-finding it itself. Yeah. Yeah. But if we want to talk about transformation, then we talk about, okay, what do we need to get there? And that discussion is not about, here's where you go wrong, but here's what we should do. Mm-hmm. We have this, we have that, but we don't have that. Can we get that instead? Yeah. That is less adversarial and a lot more receptive. Yeah. It's a matter of how we approach it, which is less adversarial, then therefore becomes more easy to accept the message, which is the intent of any conversation anyways. Have you seen any great good examples of where, as part of the transformation, there is a bit of confidence boosting for the individuals and morale specifically around like what are the capabilities that you already have that will be the foundation by which we will actually do the transformation at the individual level and then at the team level? No, I, I think that's where I, the mistake of transformation comes in. We're assuming that everybody's going to jump on board. And we've heard all these big buzzy phrases like, you know, a burning platform, uh, where do or die, the kind of thing, you know. What 
we realize is that in any large organization, and we deal with a lot of large organizations and public agencies as well, you'll find that not everyone subscribes to the philosophy and not everyone is an early adopter, an early adopter. To transform an organization, we don't, we, while we believe in big ambitions and goals, but the actual practical way of actually doing that transformation requires what we call Kaizen. I mean, you've probably heard of that philosophy as well. Mm-hmm. Minute changes, but slowly moving towards an ultimate goal. You find that most people tend to push back when you're asking them to change too much. You're in the business of habit building. It's the same thing with culture. It's the same thing with transformation. You're building new habits, not just workflows. Workflows are easy. You can design it. Oh, you're supposed to do this, 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 this. And you can work out the entire plan that looks fantastic on the report or a PowerPoint. To build habits, to be able to make use of that new workflow requires new habits and habits take time. And for people to actually accept that they cannot be repulsed by it from the first get-go doesn't work. So we need to make incremental changes, quick wins as you will, sometimes people call it that way, that is acceptable to them and slowly build on top of that. Small little things and slowly adjust. And the bigger the ship you are, the slower the turn is going to be. You're not a speedboat. You can make a quite tight turn, right? And you have to understand that analogy. It really applies to any big organization as well. That requires some people, or rather an identification of who are your early adopters, work with them so that they can actually win that space, win them over, and then slowly build up the rest of the laggards who will then slowly follow, right? If they find that their peers are doing well, those changes are acceptable. They are living and doing well, better than they are. They will slowly then change the rest of the organization as a whole. So when we talk about transformation, we don't talk about, we tend to look at it, again, that's a bias, right? We tend to think of transformation as, oh, everyone is equal. Everyone has the same kind of a mentality, same enthusiasm level, and we can all change together. That doesn't work. That's not reality. <laughs> yeah. That's a fallacy, actually. <laughs> so incremental changes, but focus primarily on the early adopters. I think there's a Japanese term for it. I think it's otaku, if I'm correct. Um, those guys who are like uh, big fanboys. Uh, enthusiastic fans, you've got to start with those first. And then when these guys, and they are your quick wins, they will then propagate. I mean, these are your guys who are your advocates and they will go around telling the rest of the organization that, well, yes, you should follow me. We're doing right. And they will bring the rest of people along and we've got relationships that no consultant will ever have inside the organization. They will then, and account influence that they can exert, you are literally leveraging on their advocates, internal advocates. Who can then influence the rest of the organization to move forward? Yeah, that makes sense. Lala, I wanted to ask you about you know the mental well-being that comes with change, and uh, because you know when we're going through change, we most of us experience some level of stress. So, uh, <laughs> and, and I think also in Asia because we're conditioned and we're brought up that you know we have to like take it on the chin and just to work through. I don't think we we are taught to look after ourselves well mm. as a default. And I think for the sandwich generation, so to speak, the ones that have young children at home and aging parents, it's quite challenging to not bring that stress to work. So maybe I'd like to just ask you, because you're a leader in your organization, you know, what, and you've got young, young children as well, you know, what do you do as a leader in order to show how you bring your whole self to work and to show you can be responsible for your well-being and the well-being of your team as part of navigating this, this world right. that we live in. 
Okay, so I, let, let me share with you my point of view of this whole, I, I think that boils down to this whole discussion right now that talks about this work-life balance, right? Uh-huh. I subscribe to the philosophy there is no such thing. Work-life balance is a myth. Uh-huh. You need to prioritize. Uh-huh. So if you want to talk about the well-being of an organization, it's about, or rather at an individual, right? Not so much an organization. Let's focus on the individual. Uh-huh. I think that's where your question is all about. Uh-huh. Yeah. With the individual, you're looking at someone who is actually trying to focus on the person's well-being. And a person's well-being is focused on what they find purposeful, uh-huh. meaningful for them. Uh-huh. And I've seen people who work very hard and seems to be working longer and harder than anyone else and still go home smiling. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. You, you have ever figured out why? Oh, definitely. Yeah, because so, they're just, you know, really enlivened by the purpose that's driving them. They can get out of bed and, you know, that's the energy that they draw from. Yeah. So to them, that's their well-being, right? Um, and they find meaning. So they put it this way, a person who has a meaningful life, it's not complaining and will not be complaining that they're working hard. Mm. If you look at the marathoners, my goodness, you know how hard it is to run a marathon? They suffer, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't come up and say, oh my goodness, no, please take care of my well-being, I suffered. No, man, they enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They're not sadistic or anything, you know, but <laughs> that's where I like to reframe the question a little bit. If you're looking for purpose in what you're doing, then you need to look at what you do in all things. Mm, true. And the stress comes because you find that your priorities and your purpose in life is not aligned with what you're doing right now. Mm, okay. Of course, at the organizational level, being the leader here with some of my other partners as well, we tend to also understand that the people are most productive when they are purposeful. Yeah. So we do, on purpose, provide the organization with flexibility. Now, that's something like the flexi work arrangement. Uh-huh. It's uh, easier said than done. Huh? So uh, we were very lucky that we were able to practice that, where if you have life coming at you and needs your priority and your attention, go do it. Come back to whatever you're doing after when you're completed that and try to solve whatever the deliverables are. So that gives them the respect that as an individual that you need, there are certain times where other things need to take priority, solve those first. Come back and take your responsibility back up again. Recharge and go. For people who are like this and knows that the company has their back covered, that stress is not a problem. Or rather, it's not a focus that they think as a gripe of what they're trying to do. No, I don't think that's an issue anymore. And of course, to help with that, no one works alone. And that's a very important part as well. We find that when you have such priorities that come at you in your life, which does happen to everyone, your team backs you up as well. Yeah. Now, that's the kind of company culture that you want. And that has nothing to do with mandating things, right? If you have a culture that learns to back each other up, in times of need, you find that there's a lot of meaning to what you do and you will never complain about the stress that you're talking about because you can handle your family, you can handle your life, you can handle your work, the demands that come at you. Mm. You aren't truly working if you're not straining. That's not work. Mm. That's a hobby. (laughs) Yeah. And I love your analogy of the marathon athlete because it is a long game. And that requires training, adequate rest. And I love what you said also about like to be working with your team and, you know, making sure you have each other's back. Yes. And I think that's the kind of mental wellness that is lacking, not so much of the physical 
stress. Yeah. I mean, we, physical is up to you to take care of yourself. Yeah. But the mental wellness that we talk about, it's to understand that you have limited time mm. and get your ego out of the way because you can't do everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Thank you, Ryan. I really enjoyed this conversation with you about influence and, and particularly from an Asian leader's perspective, because I think there's there's a certain work culture that is unique about Asia. And in this day that we're living in, where there's just so much change and so much pressure, um, sure. you know, how do we navigate it, particularly with the skills that we have and all the skills that we need to adopt and the things that we need to unlearn as well in order to really, truly thrive and succeed. A bit of a shout out to your Change Maker event. I thought maybe if you could share with uh, our audience on what that is, um, sure. that would be really great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Want to tell us a bit more? Sure. So QED Consulting, the firm that we're working for, actually, we run a leadership closed-door session once every six months uh, based out of Singapore for now. And we bring together approximately about 25% of the leaders from the public sector and about 75% from the private sector enterprise sector in that sense. So we bring them together to talk about business issues that keep them up and awake at night. And we do have a lot of conversation that goes on back and forth. It's under Chatham House Rules. So you find out that we do report on the issues that they talk about, what's inside their minds. And we do share the notes of those sessions after it has happened in the, behind the closed doors to the industry at large. So if you'd like to know more about what they've said and to also guide you and your organization as a whole, um, do drop us a note and then uh, oh, we're happy to share that document on the report review. It happens every six months. Otherwise, um, if you think that you'd like to join us, also write us a note and we'll see whether we can extend an invite to you uh, in future. Great. Thank you so much. That was great. And I really hope our audience gets uh, a lot of insights on how do we all operate to influence others in order to actually thrive in today's world. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you, Theresa. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank it's you. been a pleasure.